I'm OG Ananobi of the Toronto Raptors, and you're listening to the Double Clutch Podcast. Hello there, guys, and welcome to the Double Clutch Podcast, hosted and sponsored by Leaning. I am Joe Holbert, and I'm joined today by a special guest. I am joined by Robert Flom from SB Nation's Clips Nation. How are you doing, Robert? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing really good. I have um, been watching Summer League and baseball all weekend, so I'm in a really good place right now. And you were just telling me about how you were at Summer League, so I'll ask you a little bit about that. What's kind of Summer League? I remember when I started watching the NBA, people didn't really watch Summer League, but now everyone does. Have you kind of got that vibe from being there? Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a big thing. Uh, thousands and thousands of people. The bigger the bigger games with bigger name players and with teams that that have the bigger fan bases like Lakers, Sixers, Celtics, they're really crowded. Um, these are pr- pretty big stadiums, and fans get really into it. I was just at a Wizards Spurs game this morning, and the Wizards were making a comeback, and the crowd was really getting into it. It was actually it was a pretty small crowd; it was only like a few thousand people, but you know they were they were really excited, and there were lots of cheers and chants and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's quite as big as it was last year. I wasn't here last year, but I know the Lakers fans showed out in huge numbers for Lonzo Ball, and stuff like that has not happened this year. I think the closest is that the Suns have a fair amount of fans here because of DeAndre Ayton, but it's it's nowhere near the Lakers with Ball last year. But, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, just about every big-name NBA media guy you can think of is here. Uh, they don't all stay for very long or socialize all that much, but they're all here in one capacity or another. Uh, you know, GM, scouts, front office people—they're all here. It's just whenever you wherever you go, you see somebody you recognize um, or that you know, or that's you know even famous. I guess there are lots of players walking around and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a fun time. Yeah. Um... I've been obviously I've been watching the Wolves games. I've been really impressed with uh, Joshua Kogi, but is there any player that's or team that particularly stood out to you in summer league so far as sort of being promising, or is there you know a player who's maybe going under the radar at summer league? I think promising. I, the best player I've seen so far has been Jaron Jackson Jr. for the Grizzlies. Like, and it's not even particularly close. I think in terms of under the radar. Um, I think Michael Bridges has been pretty solid for the Suns. He hasn't done anything super flashy, but he's hitting open threes. He's playing defense. He just finds a way to fit in and help his team. And that kind of stuff doesn't stand out super much in Summer League, but I think he's showing everything of why he was considered like the most NBA-ready prospect in this draft. So I think I think he's going a little bit under the radar right now. Yeah, I've got to admit, I've not seen much on NBA Twitter about him, so you're probably right that he's going under the radar. And Obviously, the Suns need all the defense they can get with um, <laughs> how their roster is constructed. But this is, uh, this is my summer project for Double Clutch. I'm interviewing a fan or a blogger from every NBA team. So you're here to talk about your Los Angeles Clippers, I just want to get your background. So you, you've told me before you've been writing about them for quite a long time. What is your background as a writer and a Clippers fan? Like, how did you get into it, and how just how long have you been going at it? Yeah, so I've been writing for Clips Nation for almost four years now. I started, I believe, October of 2014 when the season started, and uh, I was originally mostly just doing game coverage, like recaps and previews. Although occasionally I would do a longer article when I had the time and when, you know, I was allowed to. 
but I've been an editor for about two years now, doing like a lot more writing, just helping out around the site. And uh, it was really just a lucky break for me because I was just a fan and I was a member on Clips Nation and I commented and I wrote fan posts and all that kind of stuff. And the editor-in-chief back then, Steve Perrin, asked for volunteers for writing because he wanted more people to step up. He felt like uh, a lot of the current writers were, were really busy and they couldn't always be around to write. So he wanted a bigger staff so that there was always somebody around to do games or whatever. And I said, I sent in a small writing sample and said I was interested and he said it sounded good. And that's how I got started. Really, I think that's how most writers get started is it's really just a lucky break here or there. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, if, if you're out there looking to start writing, always just talk and apply um, to positions that are open. I mean, obviously, if you, if you have no writing experience, don't go like applying to like ESPN or something. But like, I think just keep putting yourself forward and just taking those opportunities because I didn't think it would end up being like a big thing for me, to be quite honest. I thought it would just be like a fun little side thing. I'd get to watch more Clippers basketball. I'd get to write. And just over the years, it just grew more and more. And now, you know, I'm at Summer League covering them and I've been covering games and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's been great. Um, and as for Clippers fandom, I was actually a Lakers fan when I was very young. But I was, it was because I liked Shaq a lot. And when he left and uh, I was not a big Kobe guy. And I kind of just fell out of NBA for a few years, actually, and then kind of just reemerged as a Clippers fan. I think it was actually the year before the Blake Griffin draft, because uh, I remember watching Al Thornton and Eric Gordon and, and kind of cheering for them and just kept growing from there. I think you're the first person I've met who's gone from Lakers to Clippers. <laughs> it is not super common. Um, I think, yeah, I was pretty young. I was a... Uh, I was like eight or nine when Shaq left, and I was—I don't—I wouldn't even say I was like a fan. I mean, it's hard for many like really young kids to be huge fans because you know you cheer for them, but you don't know like that much about the game or about all the players or anything. I just liked watching them play, and you know they were fun. And when Shaq was gone, I, I just didn't care as much anymore. Um, but yeah, it is—it is not common though. I think when Lob City happened, I'm—I'm I'm sure a fair amount of Lakers fans jumped the ship completely or either, you know, started watching Clippers a fair amount just because they were better and more fun. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of people kind of doing it in secret. Yeah, like that kind of stuff is always, like people don't like broadcasting that they're switching teams, uh, you know, especially once you're past like a certain age or a certain level of fandom. But it's, you know, it's fine. Like people can become fans for whatever reasons and they could switch allegiances for whatever reasons. I have no real problem with it, really. No, it doesn't bother me. I'm very much of the sort of do what makes you happy mantra. But we actually, we've got quite a big Clippers following in the UK. It surprises people when I say that because, yeah, I don't know why it surprised people because the NBA is growing quite rapidly over here and the Clippers were one of the most exciting teams. But we've got a lot of Clippers fans, but I hope you don't take offence to this. But this this past season, they were not high on um, British fans' league passes uh, mainly because of the time difference, but also because there was a lot of uncertainty. But that's how I'm going to transition into maybe sort of a mini season review. We're not going to, you know, look at the record and that. You obviously you missed the playoffs, but we're going to talk about the major talking points. And the biggest one is the Blake Griffin trade. Now, I spoke to you uh, before we started podcasting, but I remember it was either your site or the fan side of Clipper site that put out a big piece. It got a lot of um, reads, a lot of interactions. It's basically Blake Griffin, thank you. You meant a lot to us. 
do you kind of echo those sentiments as well to what he was to the franchise? Or would you say you're a little bit more detached from him on a personal level? I was personally a little more detached. Uh, I liked Blake, and I definitely, he meant a ton to the franchise. I think without him, there's no Chris Paul, there's no Lob City, there's none of that. And that was the most successful period in Clippers history, and it, it doesn't happen without Blake. So in that sense, he did mean a lot to the franchise, and I watched him for how many years? Seven, eight years, and uh, watched him grow and become a better player and move past his injuries and finish third in MVP. And you know, it was great watching him uh, most of the time. He was a lot of fun. In later years, his athleticism declined a bit, and he was injured a lot more, and it wasn't quite as an amazing experience, but he was still a great player. He still is really good. Uh, but personally, I was never a huge fan of him. Uh, just not really my type of player, my type of style. I like uh, Chris Paul a lot more and DeAndre Jordan. Uh, but Blake Griffin's trade was a massive deal for this for this franchise. Yeah, it was quite a shocking trade. Um, I guess the popular take now is that Stan Van Gundy just completely panicked and said, I've got to get someone because I'm going to lose my job. Well, he lost his job anyway, but look, <laughs> looking at the trade now, when it was made... Um, were you at all surprised by it? I was a little surprised. I mean, I did not think he was going to stay the length of his contract, which was obviously, you know, this massive five-year max extension. But I did not think they would get off him that quickly. I know that they were looking to move him for other star superstar players, but I didn't think they'd move him to the Pistons. That really never crossed my mind. And, uh just that package. I never really would have thought that, that would be the Blake Griffin package. It ended up being really good, but I wouldn't have, if people had been proposing trades to me, I would never have thought Tobias Harris, uh, Boban Marjanovic, and Avery Bradley in a first would be the return on Blake Griffin. I mean, three or four years ago, that would have been insane, but it was a really good return, and I think it was a really smart trade by the Clippers, even though it cost them in terms of fandom in terms of people coming to games and watching on tv it hurt um and marketing and all that kind of stuff but for their basketball franchise i think it was it was a good deal and see i've um so obviously on nba twitter now you're seeing the rise of sort of advanced statistics a lot more people are using metrics and i've seen a lot of metrics that would suggest actually that tobias harris in 2018 is a more valuable player to an NBA franchise than Blake Griffin. Based on what you saw of Harris in the second half of the year, would you would you buy that or would you still think Griffin is the sort of more valuable player? I think Blake Griffin is better, but I think Tobias Harris is an easier fit on more teams. And Blake Griffin is a guy who he's either a number one option or a number two option. And really even with the Clippers, he was number one. Chris Paul was the best player, but Blake Griffin was the number one offensive option. And I don't think he's really good enough to be that on a team that's any good, at least without another superstar player like Chris Paul. I mean, he'll give you 22, 23 tonight on, like, solid efficiency and, like, okay rebounds and some and a pretty good assist numbers for a power forward. But this is not really a dominant scorer anymore, at least he hasn't been for a couple of years. And he's not that efficient. He's moved out behind the three-point line. But while it's opened up his game a little bit, now he's actually taking too many jumpers and he's not getting to the hoop enough and getting to the free throw line. So I think he's still better. I think he's a more talented player than Tobias Harris. I think in a vacuum, if you put 
him on a league average team with league average players and Harris, I think the team with Blake would be better and win more games. But I think on most NBA teams, Harris is a smoother fit and and would therefore be more valuable. And you also have to factor in contract because I think that's really important. He's he's going to be a lot cheaper than Blake even next summer when he signs his new deal. So yeah, and I think I'd rather have Harris at his contract than Blake at his contract, and it's not even close. As an overall player, uh, it's closer than it was or anybody would have thought a couple years ago. I'd still give the edge to Blake, though, for overall uh, versatility and, and better offensive game, I think. I think that's definitely fair, but one of, the, one of the things I love about Harris is his versatility in play types. There's so much you can do with him. Whereas I've kind of felt with Blake, you might disagree, but he's kind of he's got a couple of plays he's going to do all the time. Whereas Harris, you can get him in the P&R, you can get him spotting up, you can get him as a cutter. You can even use him maybe as a role man in, um, in multiple occasions. But obviously he wasn't the only player who took advantage of an opportunity when Blake Griffin left. Was there anyone else post All Star break who stood out to you who maybe didn't get enough credit on the national level? I think Montrose Harrell definitely. You know, with Blake gone, he was able to get a few more minutes. He was so good for the last few months of the season. It honestly, started in I think January or maybe uh, early February, which was after Blake was traded. But he was just fantastic the last half of the season. He was unguardable, uh, unguardable, unstoppable in the post. Even though he's not that big. And he's not, like, incredibly athletic. He's just so strong. And he's able to get to that hook shot. And the hook goes in. He can bully guys because he's so strong. And he is a thunderous finisher. Um, You know, he will go right at people and try to dunk over them. And that aggression proved to be really hard for most defenders to stop. And he was just awesome. I think his defense is a little a little shaky just because of his size, but he gives good effort out there. Um, He's able to switch onto smaller guys because he himself is smaller than like, say the Andre Jordan. He's not a great defender out on the perimeter, but he can stay with guys for a little bit. And just the energy that he brings every single night was incredible. And he's worth a lot of money. He's not going to get it probably this summer because of the market. But he was, he was one of the best bench players in the NBA last year. I think he was probably the most effective bench big player in the NBA. Uh, he was just so – he was averaging like 15 or 16 points a game just about um, on really good efficiency and playing in 20 minutes a night. And that's just an insane amount of production given the limited minutes. Yeah, I watched him a couple of times towards the end of the season and – he was absolutely deadly coming off of screens and um, just rolling to the basket. There's one game mm-hmm. I remember I watched, um, it was Clippers against Utah, and he was mm-hmm. absolutely destroying them on the inside. And he's, why do you think he's not gotten anything this summer? I think he's in a tough spot because, again, like he is undersized, and that means it would be tough for him to really start against top tier starting centers. Like he is not guarding Carl Anthony towns or Anthony Davis or DeMarcus cousins of healthy. Like he's just too small to, to compete against those guys. And the other thing is that part of his value or a huge amount of his value is how energetic he is and how hard he plays. And I just, am not sure he can do that for more than like 20, 25 minutes max a night. Guys generally just can't play that hard for more than, 25 or 30 minutes, which is why you see guys coasting at times and, like, you know, they take it easy on some possessions. 
Montrez never takes it easy on any possession. And that makes him lovable and makes him really fun and really good. But I think that becomes less valuable the longer you play him and the less he can put into each play. So I think I think that's basically why I don't think teams really view him as a starter. They just view him as a great bench player. But even that is really valuable. So, and I think he should be getting paid more than what he will. I think he's probably going to end up getting either a one-year deal and then hit free agency again next summer, get like a couple million dollars a year for a couple years. And I think he's worth like five or six probably at least. Yeah, he's he's got an interesting market. I think there are going to be a couple of um, bigger teams who are just going to be checking in on him at this point in free agency. I think that there will be spots eventually opening up. You know how it is. Like Generally, after the big flurry at the start of free agency when lots of guys are getting signed, it starts to become more about everybody's waiting for the few big names to go. So right now, that's like Clint Capella, Jabari Parker to a lesser extent. And there are either other guys who are a little bit ahead of Harold in the pecking order. I'm thinking of like Wayne Ellington, for example, even Luke Mbamute. Uh, you know, veteran starters who can really help a playoff team, I think. And they'll, and them and younger guys who are getting signed to like minimum deals and, and rookie contracts and stuff, they're, those are the guys who are getting signed right now. And then I wouldn't expect Harold until later. But I think some team will will end up giving him some money. And then the question is whether the Clippers will match because he's a restricted free agent. Let's say he gets a one-year five million. Would you match that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because who, who's sort of penciled in to start in your front court at the moment? Uh, Marcin Gortat is, is the starter. And Montrezl Harrell, if they bring him back, would play probably the same number of minutes. I'd, I'd assume they'd each get around 24 on any given night. Uh, some some games Harrell would probably play more. Some, day, some days Gortat would play more. But Gortat is the starter right now. That is two amazingly different centers. Um Mm-hmm. interesting to see sort of how that will work before we move on to sort of um the general of globe city era is there anyone sort of in the backcourt who stood out because i've got to be honest from what i've read obviously i don't keep as as much on the clippers as other guys which is why i've got you on here but your backcourt kind of at times seemed like a revolving door it just looked like i was seeing different names every night am i wrong and was there someone who really stood out or is, was it kind of like this revolving door it was a revolving tour. I think it was due to injuries. Uh, they traded for Avery Bradley. Well, they didn't trade for him, but he came in the Blake Griffin deal, and he only played six games before getting out with an injury. Patrick Beverly only played 12 games before he his season ended with a microfracture surgery. Austin Rivers had two injury stints where he was out. Uh, Ty Wallace and C.J. Williams, who were G League guys on two-way deals, uh, their time ran out at various points, and they had to sit. Um, and go back to the G League. So all that is true. I think the real standout was Lou Williams. He was the guy who played almost every game. I think he missed like three or four. And starting in December, he just was absolutely on fire for December and January and then into February, like scoring like 20-plus points a game on really good efficiency, great playmaking, considering his reputation is more of a gunner. He was just phenomenal. I think that it's tough to find him an all-star spot because the guys who made it over him in the West are all very worthy, but he had an all-star level season up until the all-star break. And then after that, he really started getting wearing down, getting worn down just due to fatigue and having to do too much. He's just not a player who should be relied on like that, but he was there every night. He was always scoring. He was always making plays. And uh, he was, he was just great this past year. He was awesome. Yeah. He's, um, 
he's a player who sort of people always have differing opinions on, but obviously it's very clear um, from anyone who watched the Clippers regularly that he was absolutely pivotal. Some of the um, big Clippers guys in the UK, just I'd wake up and I'd just see like, you know, the the real night owls of the UK who were uh, staying up. I'd just see, you know, Lou Williams has got 20 points again. But yeah, it's, it's good to have you on talk about the Clippers because again, it's not a team that we've really... Um, that we watched a lot of last year, but an era that we did watch a lot of was the Lob City era. Now, I'm I don't want to bring up the Clippers Rockets game seven where Josh Smith torched you, but now that uh, Austin Rivers has gone, every player that played that night is no longer on the Clippers. So it was Chris Paul, JJ Reddick, Matt Barnes, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, Jamal Crawford, Austin Rivers, Glenn Big Baby Davis, and Spencer Hawes. They're all gone. So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about these um, those Clippers and said, you know, it's it's very much a what could have been. Is that the vibe that Clippers fans get as well? Because you had a lot of bad luck in that era. I definitely think so. I think that the two series that really stand out are 2014 against the Thunder in the second round where Chris Paul had a complete meltdown at the end of Game 5, and uh, that series really could have gone either way. I think the Thunder probably were the better team, but the Clippers could have won that. And it was just a completely uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic Chris Paul moment. Um, it's never really happened since then on that level anyway. And that was a rough, rough loss. But I think the Rocket series, uh, it was shocking while it was happening. And I think it's only really gotten more shocking in hindsight. The Clippers were the better team. They had a better roster. They played better together. The Rockets came back because partially because the Clippers retired, partially because they relaxed, but really just because Josh Smith and Corey Brewer started hitting threes at a ridiculous rate. And, you know, sometimes guys make shots. Like, they're all NBA players. Those two are not good three-point shooters, but they're still NBA players. And sometimes guys like that get hot. They just happen to get hot at the exact right time. But that series is a definite what could have been. I don't think they were beating the Warriors that year. But I think people would look a bit differently on the Chris Paul Lob City era if they had won that series and they'd made a conference finals. That really changes everything because that loss really shook up the locker room. It shook up their mental confidence. Everything changed because of that. And even if they get swept by the Warriors or lose 4-1 or whatever in the next round, if they don't blow that 3-1 series against the Rockets, the entire, the entire future is different. Everything is different. I don't know how it's different, but it is. And who knows? I think on a broader scale, Blake Griffin is a big what if because even though he's had a great career, I think he's probably locked for the Hall of Fame provided he has like a couple more good years in him. Um, maybe not even all-star, but just, you know, just good, well above average power forward play, like fringe all-star level. Um, I think he'll get in, but he could have had a much better career. He was the third in MVP voting in 2014. He was the best player for much of the early 2015 playoffs. He was great against the Spurs, really good against the Rockets for the first few games. And since then, he's been injured a ton. His athleticism has gone downhill. He really, he's just not as fluid a player as he was back then. And it's a little sad to watch. And it's also just, if he'd kept up on that upper trajectory, or at least remained at that level during his prime, which he's still in, according to his age, the Clippers might not have traded him or just, again, stuff would have been different. So I think the big what-ifs are, are those two series, especially the Rockets. 
and then Blake Griffin's injuries because it just it changed how the franchise was built and how and what they were going to do going forward. And now, as you said, all those guys are gone. The only guy left who played with Chris Paul and Jamal Crawford and J.J. Redick is Wes Johnson, who came in the very last year. He came in uh, 2015-16. He's the last guy. Uh, but as you said, he wasn't even in that, that Rocket series. Um, but that's it. Everybody else is, is on another team now or retired. Yeah, it's been a, a very high turnover. I don't want to talk positively about Wes Johnson. It's well documented on this podcast. Um, <laughs> that just summed up uh, that entire really bad Timberwolves era. But you've obviously, the one mainstay has been Doc Rivers. Now, we're both on NBA Twitter. Doc Rivers, and I'm not going to pretend I wasn't doing this as well. There was so much um, negativity fired towards Doc Rivers uh, I've got to say, some of it was from Clippers fans as well. You know, they were saying they mm-hmm. maybe should have got rid of him, got a younger coach, a little bit more of a creative coach. But I've got to say, he kind of really turned himself around last year. And I know that's a, I know that's something you buy into as well. Do you think he is? He proved maybe towards the end of last year that he is the right guy to see the Clippers through this. That's an interesting question. I think he did prove that he's still a very good NBA coach last year. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was relieved of front office duties last summer. Uh, there were Lawrence Frank was already taking over before then, but last summer he finally, I mean, he still has a say. They're going to ask him about like, do you like this guy? Like, what about this? But he doesn't have like a real voice um, anymore. And I think that really enabled him to focus on his coaching. I think the Wolves and Wolves fans can sympathize because Really, GMing and coaching are two very big, very important jobs, and doing both of them at the same time with one person is just, it seems impossible to me. And I think a lot of the, the Wolves' issues, personnel-wise, rotation-wise and stuff, are because of Tibbs having to do both things at the same time. And I think just focusing on coaching made Doc Rivers a much better coach. He was clearly more prepared. He was much more in tune with rotations and, and how guys were going and pushing the right buttons. I, he was phenomenal last year. If the Clippers had made the playoffs, I think he would have gotten some Coach of the Year votes. I don't think he would have won, but he would have gotten some real votes. Um, as for going forward, I, mean, I think he's good. I don't think there's really anybody out there who's probably a better basketball coach than Doc Rivers. The question is, if you're going into like a full rebuild, do you think he will actually stick around? Uh, he did just sign an extension. But do you think he would stick around for a full rebuild? Do you think he's that kind of guy? I think he kind of showed that he is because he helped the young guys a lot this past year. He was willing to play them. He played Jawan Evans, Darius Thornwell, Ty Wallace. Uh, CJ Williams isn't that young. But he played all these young rookies and stuff, and he helped them, and they got better throughout the year, and he was patient with them. And that's what you need with a rebuilding roster so I think he is I think that they did sign him to an extension I think he's could be here for the next few years and I think it's a smart it's a smart move it's a smart decision to keep him yeah I, I definitely agree with you on the um on the dual role one of the problems I've had with Tom Thibodeau is that I think a dual guy they make very selfish decisions they make very short-term decisions mm-hmm. so again I know this isn't a Timbles podcast but like uh, Tom Thibodeau gave Taj Gibson 14 million a year not only is that very short termist, but it's um, he was kind of like bidding against himself, if that makes sense. He wasn't. Yeah. They don't think straight, and now I I question whether Thibodeau is as good at 
coaching basketball is Dot Rivers, but I think I'm with you that Dot Rivers definitely proved himself. But we need to fire these dual roles into the sun. They should, they just yeah. should, they just should not be happening at all. I mean, fair enough, giving your input, saying, "Oh yeah, I like that guy. Let's maybe uh, look at drafting him." But there's absolutely no way that. And I think Dot Rivers may, because of what he did this year, I think that may be the final nail in the coffin for that role. I think so too, and I think. Budenholzer was relieved of that last summer as well in Atlanta. Popovich has always had a say in the front office, but not really um, as much as he did a while ago. Um, Buford has really is the guy there. And then Stan Van Gundy was also relieved with the Pistons. So I think uh, Thibodeau is really the last guy left. He's the only one of those. And, you know, if the, if the Wolves don't have a good year this year, whether because they're just not very good and don't make the playoffs or there's too much locker room turmoil or whatever, I think he's going to get removed from at least one of those positions, and I don't think we're going to see that really again, maybe ever, but definitely not for a few years because I think it's been proven to be a bad a bad strategy, a bad tactic, and a bad waste of resources. Yeah, certainly. You know, you've got to think long-term as an NBA franchise. Um, Mike Boonholzer especially, he made some really um, questionable was he kind of committed to the core he had, and it's because he wanted to win games, but you know, maybe uh, committing to a core that's got a got a ceiling of winning 50 games makes you look good as a coach but when you're running a franchise you've got to look at the bigger picture and we're going to look at now the Clippers bigger picture so we've talked about last season we talked about Doc but moving forwards it's been a very interesting off season so we're going to start with the DeAndre Jordan departure now again we're both on NBA Twitter so we see people fire out some hot takes but one of the hot takes I've seen I don't know if you have but a lot of people are saying DeAndre Jordan is declining, that he's not the player he once was. Do you kind of buy that, or do you still think he's a very good player? I agree with both of those. I think that his defense is certainly not what it was two or three seasons ago. I think it's still an above-average defensive rim protector, and his ability to get not just double-digit rebounds, but like 12, 13, 14, 15 every single night is incredibly valuable. You know, he's also great at offensive rebounds, keeping possessions alive. That's all very valuable. But I do think his defense is not where it once was. And I think that he's so reliant on athleticism that if it ever really takes a step back, he's not going to be nearly as good. Uh, but I think he's still quite a good player. Like I said, he's still an above-average and protector, probably one of the better ones in the NBA. Rebounding, still one of the best. And his ability to rim run on the pick and roll on offense creates so much space for the rest of his teammates, enables point guards to have an easy outlet around the rim. He's even developed a little bit as a passer uh, with dribble handoffs and stuff. He's just very good, and he's very valuable on the offensive end. I don't think he's what he was a couple years ago when he was like an all-NBA first-team guy. Uh, But he's still a very, very nice player who will help the Mavericks, and Luka Doncic a ton. Doncic is going to love playing with him, being able to get his screens uh, to free him for shots and be able to feed him around the rim and have a guy who can just throw down um, still from almost any height. Um, His athleticism is, again, a little bit worse, but he's still a very, very bouncy player on both both sides of the court. So I think... There, there are some issues, and the free throws have gotten better. They're still not great. Uh, he still doesn't have much of a diversity of offensive game, but 
he's still, I think, a top 50 NBA player easily. Yeah, so that's kind of where um, I think a lot of smarter people stand is that, yes, he's not what he was, but he's still valuable. And and even if he's not $24 million good for the Mavericks, only one year, and what he's going to do for the other players uh, is something that I think a lot of people overlook. But I'm guessing you think it was the right decision to get rid of him now, considering where you where you are or would you have kept him? So this is interesting. I think that DJ and Blake, though Blake is now long gone, are interesting cases in that the Clippers are in a very unique situation. They're in Los Angeles, which is one of the biggest markets in the United States. It's the second biggest market. It's They're crazy for sports. But the Clippers are way behind the Lakers. And last year... Paul gone and Jamal Crawford gone and J.J. Redick gone and just not as good a team. Attendance was way down. TV watching was way down. Marketing was down. Everything was down. And they don't want to become irrelevant again. And one of the ways to do that is to keep your guys who you've had for a while, who, who fans have a history with, who they have connections with, who they'll buy jerseys, they'll support them. And I think there's a real argument to be made that even if you don't think DeAndre Jordan is really going to be a great player on the next Clippers team, on the next Clippers contending team, that he provides value in other ways and that they might have looked harder into keeping him. From a basketball perspective, I think it's the right move. I think that they need to get younger. I think that they need to move on in just terms of how they, how they structure their offense and defense. I think they need to modernize a little bit. Um, but I think it is a risky play between letting him go and trading Blake in terms of keeping your fandom because I think it's only going to go down from here unless one of their their rookies is really, really good or they're able to land a Kawhi Leonard or something. They don't have any guys who people can really latch on to very easily. So I think it was probably the right move to let him go, but I think there is some real downside there. So I'm guessing you think those attendances are going to take quite a big hit this year. Yeah, I mean, it was already took a massive hit last year, and I think that's going to be worse this year. I mean, there's not going to be any Blake. There's not going to be any DJ. Right now, I mean, the biggest player on the team is probably Lou Williams. I mean, Tobias Harris is better, but I think more people know about and get excited for Lou Williams. And while everybody loves Lou Williams, and he's not a guy that many people are going to pay to see in person. So I think their biggest hope, honestly, is actually a sad reversion to the Donald Sterling years where the Lakers are just going to be outrageously expensive this year because of LeBron and the Clippers are just going to be the cheap team that people can go to and bring their families and not spend like, you know, $800 on tickets. I think that might be their best avenue, but it's certainly not a very glorious one. No, that reminds me a lot of, uh, so I'm a Manchester City fan and mm-hmm. when I was growing up, that was kind of what we were. We were the... Um... We were the little brother everyone felt sorry for because their bigger brother was just so much better than him. Obviously, it's not the case now, which I um, gloat about a lot, but it's it's quite depressing to be sort of in that shadow. It really is. I mean, I think Lakers fans are obviously through the moon about LeBron to coming to their team. And I think most other NBA fans aren't really big Lakers supporters. You know, they're not a super well-liked team across the league, but Clippers fans are really devastated by it because, you know, if they'd kept their young guys and Lonzo and Ingram and, and Randall and built their way up, they would probably be fun. They might be 
probably about the same level as the Clippers, maybe more exciting, obviously a much bigger fan base. But I still think the relevancy would have been more even. But now with LeBron coming to the Lakers, everything just goes completely out of out of whack again. I mean, now it's back to like prime Kobe years in like the late, you know, two thousands when those those Kobe Pow teams were making the finals and the Clippers were not good. And the Lakers just dominated Los Angeles. I'm not sure the, the Clippers are going to fall that far because they don't have Sterling. You know, they have Ballmer, they have Jerry West, they have Doc Rivers. They're a better team. They're more professional. They still have some of that. But I think that there's a real chance that, you know, people in L.A. are not going to care about them anymore. And LeBron's move was just – it had to be shattering for the Clippers. Um, I'm guessing they knew – uh, it was it was basically an open secret the last week or two, as I'm sure you probably know from just being on Twitter and listening to podcasts and stuff that he was coming. But it was still it was bad. It was it was it was not a depressed. It was not a very fun day for Clippers fans when the LeBron decision came out. It was it was pretty depressing. No, I can imagine. I that, that's just bringing back memories of my childhood. But um, I guess that that's a good segue in um, maybe to what the Clippers should do as a response to this. So. You wrote an article the other day, which I read, um, very much enjoyed it, but it was about how the Clippers should enter a rebuild. Do you stand by that even if a... I don't think a Kawhi Leonard deal is realistic. I don't. I haven't met a single Clippers roster who... Sorry, a Clippers guy who has agreed that you've got the pieces on your roster to make the trade, but you know, there's reports coming out that he's more inclined to join the Clippers than the Lakers or you know another big team. Do you still believe you should enter a rebuild, even knowing that you have a chance, potential chance at Kawhi Leonard when, when he hits free agency? First choice should be to get Kawhi Leonard. Um, you know, I think within reason they should give up basically as many assets as possible to get him. He's a superstar. Two years ago, he was one of the best players in the NBA, uh, probably top three. Um, he's just phenomenal. He would be the best player in Clippers franchise history. I think if he's healthy. And at that level still, he is better than even prime Chris Paul and Blake Griffin were. And those guys were both all NBA players. Um, so I think they should make that move. But I agree that it doesn't seem likely, at least right now. And I think they should enter a rebuild. I don't know right now that they make the playoffs. I don't think that they do. They don't have a star player. The closest, again, is Tobias Harris and probably Lou Williams. And those guys are really good. But they're not good enough to drag this roster to the playoffs. I think they have some solid veterans. They have some promising young guys. But the West is stacked. It's only getting more difficult now that LeBron is on the Lakers and other teams are getting better as well. The Suns are better. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. But they're going to be a harder team to beat on a game to, on a day-to-day basis. Same with the Grizzlies. And I just I can't see the Clippers with this roster making the playoffs. But I think they're going to be good enough to not get a horrible pick because I think. There are a ton of East teams that will still be pretty bad. The Kings will still be bad. I think the Clippers will still be better than, like, the Suns and Grizzlies. And, you know, that puts them at probably around 10th again, which is a solid pick. And with the way the lottery is shifting, it'll give them a decent chance at a top pick. But I think they should be worse. You know, if you're going to be in the lottery, you should be farther down the lottery. And I don't think really being competitive and winning 40 games compared to 30 and dropping three slots in the draft order is worth it. No, and it's it's kind of that purgatory that you can get in. And so I follow NFL as well. You can't really end up in purgatory in the NFL because 
like having a top pick doesn't necessarily matter as much but in the NBA you absolutely can and that's my fear for this Clippers team is that you might end up there but you did have two picks in the lower lottery this year now so I, I want to go with the actually the second guy you chose which I remember you said on draft night you will not see a bigger reach than Jerome Robinson so Jerome Robinson shooting guard out of Boston College I hope I've got that mm-hmm. right um yeah yep. why do you hate the pick so much what was it about it so I will say that I don't think he's a horrible prospect. I think that he could be a good NBA player. I think he's he's a really good scorer. He's a really good shooter. I just think, like I said, I think he was a really big reach at 13. Um, he's a shooting guard, basically, but I think he's a little undersized. And defense has very varying opinions. Some people thought he was one of the worst defenders in college last year. Other people thought he was okay. People who did think... Some people who did think he was awful and agree with that still think it was because he had so much offensive responsibility and was told not to foul. And his coach basically told him not to play super hard on defense, which I think is possible, but I don't know if that is really a great sign anyway. Um, like, I think he would have been a perfectly fine pick in the mid to late 20s. I mean, if in the early 20s even, sure. But at 13, there were several prospects on the board who I think were much, much better and it was just a reach. And the reports after the draft came out that teams right behind them were also thinking of drafting him, which might be true, but it still doesn't make me feel that much better about it. I think he's going to be have a nice career. I think he's probably going to be a good scoring guard off the bench for a number of years, but I just don't think he was worth the 13th pick in the draft. He was very divisive. He was a quick riser, or he was a guy that mm-hmm. that people were um, just hey. So I've got Jackson Hoy's big board up. He had him at fifty eight. Bleacher Report. I don't know who wrote this one, but they had him at twelve. So sorry, thirteen. Excuse me. But do you kind of? I'm guessing you don't. You took a little dive into his tape when you drafted him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he can really create his own shot. And his scoring is pretty advanced. I mean, he is a junior, so it makes a little more sense. But he's an advanced scorer. His form is very nice on his jump shot. It's smooth. He gets up quick. He gets good elevation. He has nice handles. They're not amazing. He's not, you know, Jamal Crawford or Kyrie Irving. But he has, he has nice handles. He can create separation. He can get to the hoop. But my worry with him is that when his shot is not falling, I'm not sure what else he does. He's not a great rebounder. He's not a great defender. He's an okay passer, but that is not really his game to create for others. And he's also a guy who had the ball in his hands a lot in college. So a guy who needs the ball a lot and who likes to shoot a lot can be awesome. Just look at a guy like Steph Curry or, or Kyrie or Dame Lillard. But Jerome Robinson is just not on that level of shooting or, or scoring. At least I don't think so. And... That's why I think the, the Clippers are smart to play him off ball a little bit more because if you can get him to play off ball, then he becomes a little bit more of a traditional shooting guard. And, you know, at least at the very least, he provides spacing. You know, he's creating room for other guys. He's drawing the defense's attention away from the ball, whatever. I think he's just not a super well-rounded player at the 13th pick. And there are better guys available. But there was some promising stuff. Like, I do think that there is a chance that if he does learn to become a little bit better handler in the pick and roll and looks for players a bit more, he could be a point guard. 
and could be like a really good scoring guard. But I think it's more likely he becomes uh, just a good six man, which is a nice player. And if you get him for cheap and he's good right away, like that's a fine pick. But I just I had some guys who I like better. Um, and whose tape I thought was superior, and they're younger, and they have more upside. I don't, I don't see all star in Jerome Robinson. I see a guy who at best is probably going to be a good starter, um, and I think tops out as a pretty good sixth man. Um, so I'm not, I don't think he's bad. I wasn't, you know, moaning about the pick um, after my initial shock, where I was just completely surprised. But I think that there's some stuff left to be desired there. I think that's fair enough. That's kind of the vibe I've got is that people have kind of, I mean, people, NBA fans always do this. Even if they hate a pick straight away, they'll kind of warm to it after a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was like me with Justin Patton last year. When he, uh, when, we, <laughs> when we draft, I turned the draft off. I said, we've already got like 25 centers. Why have you taken another one? I kind of warmed to it. And actually it's, I got a similar vibe. Like I saw Patton as this kind of potential bench piece, but, but nothing more. But your other first round pick, it looked like Charlotte had snagged him. Then you did a trade. Uh, Shade Gil- Gilgis Alexander. Now, I've got to be honest, I wasn't big on him. I thought there were a couple of issues. I, I questioned whether he could create for himself in the half court, even if he could create for others. But what did you make of that bit? Were you bigger on that one than Robinson? Yeah, much. I like Shay a lot. He wasn't my favorite pick at 11. I like Miles Bridges better. I mean, at 12, because the Clippers traded up, and the Hornets, who they traded up, were actually selected Miles Bridges. I like Miles Bridges a bit better, and I also like Zaire Smith better, who ultimately went 16 um, to the Suns and then was, of course, traded to the Sixers. I liked both those guys better, but Shea, I think... I need to go back and look. I think he was third on my board um, of guys available. I like him a lot. I think he's probably, again, not going to be an all-star, but I think he's going to be a very good starter, uh, if his shot pans out, he's very smart. He plays at a great pace, good passer, really good running the pick and roll, and just a steady, steady presence. And that's invaluable for a point guard. Um, both of them have gotten rave reviews in terms of intangibles, teammate, just being good guys, which is it, it is really important. Uh, but Shea just seems like a very smart, heady basketball player, and you can never have too many of those guys. So. Again, I'm not seeing a guy who has like the athleticism or scoring to really be, you know, a top 30 NBA player. But I think he could be very good. I think there's an outside chance he could get to an all-defensive team or two as well uh, if he puts on a little muscle and can really switch like one to three and maybe even one to four due to his his height and length. Yeah, it was a very it was a very interesting draft, but you've. You've gone there, so I'm guessing you would have preferred a you wanted a Bridges Smith duo at that point in the draft. Yes, my ideal would have been stay at twelve, let the Hornets keep Shea, even though I like him. Select Bridges at twelve, Zaire Smith at thirteen. That would have been my ideal. Well, Dot Rivers and Jerry West and Lawrence Frank, they went in a very different direction, and and Shea strikes me as this sort of traditional point guard. I don't like mm-hmm. to label players, but he he strikes me as the kind of point guard that Dot Rivers would maybe like to work with. Yeah, I definitely agree. Jerome Robinson, I get the feeling, was a Jerry West pick. Where and obviously they all okayed him, but he was a guy who some people felt really strongly about. Everybody in the Clippers front office and just the entire organization loved Shea. They had dinner with him very early into the draft process. Doc Rivers is there. Lawrence Frank was there. They loved him. They had their eyes set on him ever since. 
And, yeah, I mean, I think after that, he was almost a lock to be a Clipper if he was available um, or if he was, you know, close enough to where they could trade up without giving up too many assets. They just loved him. I think Doc Rivers, you're absolutely correct that he is a Doc Rivers point guard. Um, he's tough. He's smart. He likes to pass. He likes to play defense. Uh, Doc is going to have, a, you know, a phenomenal time teaching him up and coaching him and giving him tips on, on how to run a team and how to be a good leader on the court. I think it's honestly a great fit with the two of them. And I think that is another reason to be hopeful about his development uh, is that there, there are not many coaches, I think, who are better suited to help Shea than, than Doc Rivers. Um, again, not necessarily my ideal draft pick, but I think he's a very good prospect and, and a good fit on the Clippers team. Well, that was good. Um, it's good to have you on to talk about the Clippers. As I've said, like it's not a team that... I hope you don't get offended by that because uh, some... Some fans of smaller teams get really upset at the idea that... And I, I say some fans, that was what I was in the Timberwolves' dark days. I was like, how are you not watching the 12-70 and 70 Timberwolves? But it was... Um, have you got anything else you'd like to add on the Clippers? Um, I'd just like to say that I think they will be fun this year. I know a lot of people really liked watching them last year. They thought that with a lot of those veterans gone, especially after the Blake Griffin trade, they were just a very fun, likable team. I like all the guys on the team personally. I think they're all good. They're fun. Um, I think they'll play an exciting brand of basketball, probably be good offensively, not so great defensively, just like last year. But if, if you know, the Clippers are playing on East Coast time, a time where it's, it's easier for you guys across the pond, I guess you can say, uh, to watch them at a reasonable hour, I think they'll be a great team to watch. Uh, I don't necessarily think that you should go super far out of your way to watch them, uh, you know, whereas... You know, the Warriors are always worth a watch. The the Lakers of LeBron are going to be super popular. But the Clippers should be a really fun fun watch. And when they're playing good teams, I think I think they'll stand out really well. They're very competitive, and they're they're going to play hard every single night for Doc Rivers. I definitely agree with you. I will be trying to keep on. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. No, it's all right. It was um again. It's this is my project, so I don't know who's up next. But you were the first. I hope you're um. Hope you're honoured to be the first. But yeah, as I've said on our on our website, at the moment we've got a lot of articles, um, a lot of articles going out, a lot of new contributors. And stay tuned for more updates. Others at the NBA 2K event in Athens, we will be podcasting about that as well. But for tonight, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Robert.